Okay, so 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 20 to 34. Solomon's daily provisions. The people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank, and they were happy. And Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. These countries brought tribute and were Solomon's subjects all his life. Solomon's daily provisions were 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 head of stall-fed cattle, 20 of pasture-fed cattle and 100 sheep and goats, as well as deer, gazelles, roebucks and choice fowl. For he ruled over all the kingdoms west of the river, from the Tifsa to Gaza, Gaza and had peace on all sides. During Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, lived in safety, each man under his own vine and fig tree. Solomon had 4,000 stalls for chariot horses and 12,000 horses. The district officers, each in his month, supplied provisions for King Solomon and all who came to the king's table. They saw to it that nothing was lacking. They also brought to the proper place their quotas of barley and straw for the chariot horses and the other horses. Solomon's wisdom. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding and measureless, measureless as the stand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the men of the east and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than any other man, including Ethan the Ezrite, wiser than Heman, Calco and Dada, the sons of Mahol, and his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs numbered 1,005. He described plant life from the cedar, cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the walls. He also taught about animals and birds, reptiles and fish. Men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. It's the name of the Lord. And uh, you'll know that uh, early morning television seems to be monopolised by people who make some pretty big promises. Uh, whether it's the slick evangelists with their promises of health and wealth and all of that sort of thing, uh, or whether it's that um, exercise machine or exercise program that uh, promises to turn you into an athlete in three weeks with five minutes work every day. Uh, but then there are the investment advisors. I don't know if you've seen them or not, uh, where for you know four easy payments, uh, they will sell you the secret to getting rich through investing in houses. And they introduce you to people whose lives have been changed by the program. Uh, people who will tell you that uh, they used to work for a living, uh, but now they own half a suburb of uh, houses and they're doing absolutely wonderful. Uh, the promise, of course, is that all of your financial problems will be solved, that uh, you will be secure, comfortable, rich and happy, that you will be set up for life. Well, if it sounds too good to be true, guess what? It usually is. <laughs> Uh, I did some digging around, which meant Google searching, uh, on uh, one of these particular um, investment advice um, companies that advertise on TV, and I discovered some interesting facts about them. I discovered that uh, they're not actually, they're not only, that their primary business isn't actually just giving people advice on how to get rich through the real estate market. 
they're actually developers. And they don't just advise you on how to buy houses, they also sell you the houses. Their houses, which they have developed on these vast tracts of lands on the outer suburbs of uh, cities, which actually are probably not the best uh, location. Uh, but that's not all. They not only sell you advice, they not only sell you the house, but they're also financiers. They will lend you the money to buy their houses with the advice they have given you. They also own a valuation company, which uh, means that after several years of you owning your houses, they will do a free valuation of the houses you've purchased to tell you how much equity you've now got in it, and to make you feel confident uh, to borrow some more money from them to buy more of their houses so that you can even get richer, or so they say. Uh, the one service that apparently they don't offer is bankruptcy advice and, and insolvency services. So I think if they did, that they would actually be delivering for you the complete package because you may well need that. And suddenly the promise of wealth uh, and the impression that they really care for you, uh, that they care for your security, that they care for your future, sounds a bit hollow. Well, friends, the Bible is a book of promises. Promises which are made to ordinary people, people like you and me, and promises which are made by God. In today's passage, we uh, see that God is actually very faithful in delivering on the promises that he makes. So I'm wondering if you'd uh, turn open your Bibles to 1 Kings. We're going to be sort of having a bit of a look at 1 Kings chapters 3 and 4 this morning. Um, you'll find that on page 238. It's a bit hard to find some of these passages sometimes. Knowing the page number is pretty helpful. And if you were with us last week when we looked at the first couple of chapters of 1 Kings, uh, you'll remember that the young King Solomon had... Uh, been asked by God to ask for whatever he wanted. Solomon asked God for wisdom. And God made a promise to Solomon. He promised that he would give him wisdom, but also that he would give him great wealth because he hadn't asked for wealth and that uh, Israel would be uh, secure under Solomon's rule. Well, 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 20 to 34, which was read for us earlier on, uh, is a great description of what Israel was like uh, during the, the high point of Solomon's rule. And I wonder what you thought as the passage was being read to us. I wonder what impression uh, that you uh, received was. It's an amazing picture, isn't it? Uh, it describes Israel at a, at a time of remarkable power and prosperity. So let's have a bit of a look at that, shall we? Uh, I'm going to read to you from verses 20 to 21 of uh, chapter 4. Um, by the way, some of you may have missed out on a bulletin today. Sorry about that. Uh, it's good news that uh, we printed the same number as normal, but uh, they've all gone. Uh, but in your bulletins you will find an outline of the talk. Uh, perhaps if someone doesn't have one near you and maybe there's two of you can look on and share. But have... Sorry? There's some at the back, are they? I'm sorry, I was told there wasn't. 
Okay. All right, well, we'll have to invite more people to church so that we run out of bulletins next week. Now, verses 20 to 21 are very interesting. Let me read them for you. The people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank, and they were happy. And Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines, as far as the border of Egypt. These countries brought tribute and were Solomon's subjects all his life. All right, what we hear there is that the population of Israel was was huge. Um, So like the sand on the seashore, you couldn't actually count the people. And we're told also that Solomon ruled from the river, which is the river Euphrates, which is uh, in Babylon, uh, modern-day Iraq. So that's in in the east. Um, all the way through to the the border of Egypt, uh, which is in the west. So it's a vast tract. Basically, he ruled most of what we'd call today the Middle East. Israel had become an empire. Solomon, we're told, ruled over other nations. And the political and administrative machinery to, uh, to rule a small empire like that uh, was, was huge. Um, <clears throat> scholars estimate how many people were employed in the king's household. And you know what it's like when you get two or three scholars together, you get three or four opinions. Um, some estimate that uh, the, the lowest number of people I heard was 15,000 people, uh, up to about 27,000 people, all employed uh, in Solomon's household. Uh, that's, that's huge. Uh, whether that's um, at the lower end or the higher end, uh, that is a huge number of people. Can you imagine feeding that lot every day? Well, we're told a bit about the feeding. Um, In verses 22 to 23, we're told it required 30 cores of flour. Uh, What that translates into is about 6,600 litres of flour and about 13,200 litres of meal. Meal is apparently, it's, um, I'm not a farmer, but it's, uh, uh, it's a powdery uh, stuff that comes from other things other than wheat, um, and you eat it. Uh, we're told that uh, the daily uh, menu required 30 head of cattle and about 100 sheep and goats and so on. It was a huge operation, just feeding Solomon's household. Now it's easy to gloss over those figures, but I don't think we're meant to gloss over them. I think that they're there to to give us uh, an impression uh, so that we can feel the sheer enormity of uh, of Solomon's status and the the uh, prosperity and the power and the influence of Israel. Um, In verses 29 to 34, Solomon himself was given great wisdom and knowledge. Uh, He wrote thousands of proverbs and songs. We've got some of those recorded for us in the Bible. Uh, The book of Ecclesiastes, which is a wisdom book, which is reportedly written by Solomon. Uh, The book of Song of Solomon, the great romance book of the Bible, is written by Solomon. We're told he was a scientist, that he uh, understood horticulture, uh, that he understood animals, so so he was a zoologist. So he was a wise man, he was a knowledgeable man, incredibly so. 
So that's the royal court. Now, you don't judge a nation by how grand its royal court is. Uh, I think that the measure of a nation is not how well the king lives, but it's how well the underprivileged live, the poor people and the ordinary people. Well, we're, taught, we're told about how the ordinary people lived. In verse 20, we're told that they ate, they drank, and they were happy. Uh, there's a beautiful little comment in verse 25, which said that uh, during Solomon's time, everyone lived in safety, and listen to this, each man under his own vine and fig tree. That's a quaint little picture, isn't it? Each man sitting under his own vine, his own fig tree. Uh, I guess if we were to describe life in Australia in similar sort of way, we might say that you know there was everyone had a job, uh, everyone had their nice little house with a lovely backyard and a swimming pool and a couple of cars in the garage. Everyone was happy. And so after all of the years of war and insecurity, there was now peace and prosperity. Israel was firmly established in the land that God had once promised them. Now that is an important statement, the land that God had once promised them. Because uh, more than a thousand years earlier, God had made some promises to Solomon's ancestor, Abraham. And I want us to look at those promises to Abraham for a few minutes this morning because they are very, very important for understanding the rest of the Bible and for understanding what's happening here in 1 Kings chapter 4. I wonder if you might um, put a bulletin uh, in 1 Kings chapter 4 and go back with me to Genesis chapter 12. That's a long way back. A thousand years earlier, during the time of Moses, sorry, before Moses, during the time of Abraham, rather. Uh, Abraham's name here is Abram. It means blessed father. It was a funny name because he didn't have any kids. Uh, God changed his name later to Abraham, which means father of many, which is even more embarrassing for Abraham because he was fairly old and he didn't have any kids and didn't look like there was much prospect of that happening. But let me read to you verses 1 through to 9. Everyone got that? The Lord said to Abraham, Leave your country, your people and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham left as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham, Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abraham travelled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moriah at Shechem. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. 
From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev, which in Hebrew means desert. All right. So <clears throat> Abram is the nomadic uh, herdsman uh, in the Middle East. God appears to him and God makes to him three key promises. Let me spell those promises out for you. Firstly, in verse 2, Abraham's descendants would become a great nation. As I said, that was very strange to Abraham because he was 75 years old and his wife wasn't far behind him and they had no kids. And But God is promising that, yeah, you're going to have kids. In fact, you're gonna, your offspring will be a great nation. That's the first promise. Second promise in verse 7, that uh, as Abraham stood there and he looked out on this, this great land, that uh, God said to him that to your offspring I will give this land. The whole land of Canaan would be given to Abraham's descendants. That's the second promise. The third promise in verse 2, that God would bless Abraham's descendants. And that other nations would be blessed through them. Okay, three promises, a great nation, a land, and a blessing for them and for all the nations. Now let's fast forward a thousand years back to 1 Kings chapter 4 and see how this is all kind of panned out. Uh, take a look at verse 20 again, because in verse 20, 1 Kings 4 on page 239, in verse 20, Abraham's descendants were now as numerous as the sand on the seashore. A great multitude, a great nation had been established from Abraham. That's the first promise fulfilled. Secondly, in verse 21, Abraham's descendants now occupied and ruled over all of the land that God had promised, plus some more. And thirdly, in verse 22, God blessed them with great wealth, but in verse 34, the other nations were blessed through them. Um, we read there that the kings from lots of other nations around the world sent their men, presumably their scholars, uh, their wise people, um, to Israel to meet with King Solomon and to learn about the world from him. What a great blessing education is. How, what a blessing uh, to be able to teach people about the world that God has created and to give people wisdom. Um, there's a famous, one famous person who visited him was uh, in... 1 Kings 10, the Queen of Sheba. Uh, and there's been famous paintings painted and movies made and so on. And uh, Sheba is uh, probably in Ethiopia, North Africa um, kind of area. Uh, I think that's northeast Africa. And uh, she was astounded by what she saw of Solomon's wisdom and uh, the prosperity and how great Israel was. Uh, in chapter 10, verse 24, we're told, and I quote, the whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. 
So God is not only blessing the people of Israel, God is blessing the Gentiles as well. A great nation, a land, and a blessing. The promises to Abraham, which his descendants had looked forward to for centuries. Now, we often get let down by people who don't keep their promises, don't we? Um, Because they're not trustworthy. Imagine if God were not trustworthy. Imagine if God... Uh, just played games with people's lives. Uh, If you're a Christian, then you are a person who has staked your life on the promises that God has made to you. Uh, Think about the things which God has promised. He's promised forgiveness for those who trust in Jesus. Uh, He's promised everlasting life. And you really do need to stake your life on these promises promises because God says that uh, uh, in order to have these things you've actually got to give over your life to God uh, to his son Jesus so the stakes are high God has made big promises to us and the Old Testament uh, continually gives us solid grounds for trusting that when God makes a promise God delivers throughout the Old Testament uh, there are many times when uh, God has promised blessing and he has delivered. Uh, There are times when he has promised judgment and he has delivered as well. Um, Noah and the Great Flood would be a good example of that. There's one thing, though, about God's promises. They are often connected with the word if. Uh, God only promises us forgiveness and eternal life if. We put our trust in Jesus and live with him as our king. Um, Israel under Solomon would continue to be blessed, but only if they continue to trust and obey God. The word if is very important. And the king was to set the example. Now, the Old Testament tells us that God actually has a few things to say about what kingship in Israel was to be like. I wonder again if we can uh, sort of rewind back to uh, the time of Moses. It's about six or seven hundred years earlier. And I wonder if you'll come with me to Deuteronomy chapter 17. There's a bit of Bible flipping in today's sermon, isn't there? Uh, don't worry, there's not too much more of that uh, uh, to come. But uh, this is important stuff, and you'll see why in a moment. Deuteronomy 17 is on page 138. And I'm just going to read a few verses for you. This is Moses speaking, uh, addressing the people of Israel. And he says this to them, verse 14. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say... Let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Uh, Be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. We saw the dangers of not doing that last week, didn't we? He must be from among your own brothers. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not a brother Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself, Or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives. 
or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. There's a few things there the king must not do, isn't there? He must not acquire lots of horses, especially from Egypt. He must not acquire many wives. He must not acquire for himself much silver or gold. So I wonder how Solomon uh, scored uh, on those issues. Let's go back to 1 Kings 3 and 4. Well, in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 26, what did Solomon possess lots of? Horses. Uh, Solomon acquired thousands of horses for himself. And uh, in chapter 10, verse 26, you know where he got the horses from? Egypt. Sent his men back to Egypt uh, to buy horses from them. That's uh, strike one. I gotta say it's kind of three strikes and you're out here. <laughs> strike one. Secondly, the king was not to accumulate large amounts of silver and gold for himself. But in chapter 10, Solomon uh, received about 23 metric tons of gold every year. They came from a couple of different sources. One was the uh, other nations that he ruled. They'd send him stuff. And uh, the other one was the people who came to him from other parts of the world and to get his wisdom would actually give him gifts of gold and silver. Uh, And we're told that he actually used it on himself. 23 tons per year. That's hard to wrap your mind around, isn't it? I, you got any idea what that would look like? 23 tons of gold? There's a place in New York. It's called the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Uh, it's in Liberty Street, just around the corner from Wall Street. And it's, as far as I know, it's, well, as far as they can guess, it's the largest repository of gold in the world. Um, Uh, They don't know for sure because the Swiss banks do not reveal how much gold they keep. But the Federal Reserve Bank of New York has got this underground vault. Any Bruce Willis fans here? Anyone seen Die Hard with a Vengeance? Well, that's real. Uh, In Die Die Hard with a Vengeance, remember they kind of um, tunnelled into this uh, underground vault and stole all of this. That was the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Okay, it's huge. Apparently, uh, you, you can um, uh, you can go on tours if you book six months in advance. I'll take you down into the vault. You can look, but you cannot touch. The gold is owned by lots of different nations in the world, and uh, so when a country buys gold from another country, someone in the Federal Reserve Bank of New York just goes down into the vault takes a few blocks of gold bullion from one pallet and goes and puts them onto another pallet. Seriously, that's the way it works. So it's, you know, 23 tons. uh, There's 5,000 tons of gold in the uh, Federal Reserve Bank of New York and it's worth several hundred billion dollars. Got any ideas about how we can tunnel into it? (laughs) Now, 23 tons... Uh, is not nearly as great as that, but uh, it's still mind-boggling, isn't it? Um, the kind of wealth that Solomon was uh, accumulating for himself. 
That's strike two. Uh, thirdly, the king was not to marry lots of women. Uh, in fact, in Exodus chapter 34, no Israelite was to marry someone who is not an Israelite. Uh, that, that's a spiritual thing. It's because they were not to marry someone who did not worship the same God as the God of Israel. Um, that's why, you know, if you're a Christian young person, uh, don't marry someone who's not a Christian. Don't marry someone who doesn't have the same spiritual um, relationship with God as you do. Because the warning in, in Exodus and the warning in uh, for, for the kings of Israel was that if you married uh, foreign women, that they would turn your heart away from the Lord. And that's what happened to Solomon. Uh, in... Um, uh, because he, he married women who turned his heart away from God uh, and, to, and he worshipped, end up worshipping false gods. Um, in chapter 3, verse 1, one of the first things he did as king was to marry the daughter of the Egyptian pharaoh. Okay? Now, it's one more thing. In chapter 3, verse 3, uh, have a look at that. I'm going to read it for you. In chapter 3, verse 3, Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the statutes of his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burnt incense on the high places. The high places were places of worship which the Canaanites had established to worship their pagan gods, and some of the Israelites just kind of took over those places uh, as places to go to to worship the God of the Bible. But uh, that was not on, and Solomon uh, did not stop that practice. In fact, Solomon indulged in that practice. So 1 Kings 3 and 4 is a bit of a mixed picture, isn't it? On the one hand, the promises that God made to Abraham look like they might have been fulfilled. There is a, a nation, a land, and a blessing. But you kind of wonder how long it's going to last because the cracks have already appeared in the king himself. Um, Solomon starts by marrying one foreign woman for political reasons, of course. Um, other nations come to him with gold and silver and he's happy to accept that gold and silver for himself. And it doesn't seem any harm in sending some men across to Egypt to uh, get more horses. And why get people offside by demolishing the high places? Do you see what's happening? He's compromising. He's compromising. And the compromises started right at the very beginning of his kingship. Now, you and I need to be on guard against compromise. Because uh, sin doesn't usually start in its full-blown um, situation. Uh, when we make small compromises, uh, we often think that it doesn't really matter very much. You know, a little small white lie uh, or just a little bit of gossip or uh, just um, maybe uh, just a bit of a glimpse of that website that maybe we shouldn't uh, look at and so on. A little bit of flirting with uh, someone who we're not married to. And then the next time when we're in the same situation, well, it doesn't feel like such a compromise. 
and it starts to become acceptable to us. So we make bigger compromises. We step over more boundaries. And before we know it, it becomes part of us. That was Solomon. That was Solomon. Solomon uh, started by marrying one woman who didn't believe in God. How many women did he end up with? Does anyone recall? Anyone want to have a guess? A thousand. 700 wives. These were women of royal descent from other nations. Um, and 300 concubines. The vast majority of these women did not love God. And that was a trap for him. They turned his heart away from God. It was the beginning of the end. And uh, later we're going to see how this great kingdom crumbled. We're going to see how God withdrew his blessing, how Israel lost her wealth, lost her land, and how her people were scattered amongst the nations in exile under the rule of pagan kings. This was the beginning of the end. And so what about the promises that God made to Abraham of a great nation, of a uh, people, a land and a blessing? Uh, did it all amount to nothing? Was it all a bit like the infomercials on TV first thing in the morning? Well, no. Friends, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, the Apostle Paul said that Every promise that God has made finds its yes and amen in Christ Jesus. That all of God's promises are fulfilled in one person, in Jesus. Let me say, don't worry about what's happening at the front here. That's fine. Let's focus on the word of God. Um, uh, that'll be okay at the front here. The grand picture that we see of Israel in 1, in 1 Kings chapter 4 is really the climax of uh, life for the physical descendants of Abraham. But it's meant to point us to a greater spiritual reality. You see, who is God's king who sits on God's throne forever? It's not David, is it? He's dead. It's not Solomon. He's dead as well. Who is it? It's Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus sits on God's throne forever. Uh, when they executed Jesus, they rightly declared him to be the king of the Jews. They didn't know that they were correct in declaring that. They thought it was a joke. But they executed him as the king of the Jews. God's promises to Abraham are fulfilled in Jesus. Let me explain this. First of all, when Christ died on the cross and paid for our sins, do you know what he did? He created a new people. He created a people, a forgiven people, a people who belong to God. He created a new nation. Uh, when you and I trust in Jesus as our king, uh, when you do that, you become a true Israelite. We become true Israelites. You become a spiritual descendant of Abraham. The Christian church, 
is the true Israel. The political entity that we see in the Middle East today, uh, that is not what it's about. The Christian church is the true Israel. Secondly, when Jesus was raised from the dead, you know what he achieved? He secured a place for you in heaven. That's what he's done. He secured a place for you in heaven uh, for all who trust in Christ. Heaven is the promised land. Heaven is the promised land. And so he has achieved a people. He has achieved a land. And thirdly, through Jesus and through God's church, all nations are blessed. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what your race is, your language, your nationality. It doesn't matter how you have lived your life. It doesn't matter what you have done wrong in the past. It doesn't matter what your background is. God's promise of forgiveness and eternal life is offered to you. And with that comes the riches of heaven. Solomon's kingdom was very impressive. It was the high point of Israel's life. But it is meant to point us to the greatest spiritual reality. It was only a shadow of the spiritual wisdom that can come by being connected with Christ Jesus. It was only a shadow of the reality of the spiritual wealth that we can enjoy if we have Jesus as our king. In Colossians we're told that every spiritual blessing has been given to you in Christ. And it's only a shadow of the greatest spiritual reality which we can look forward to in our heavenly home. In a few moments we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper. And as we do so, we remember those great spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who makes promises and keeps them. We thank you, Father God, for the promise of uh, spiritual wisdom and spiritual wealth that uh, we see a foreshadowing of in the kingdom of Israel during the reign of Solomon, but we see the fulfilment of in the heavenly kingdom where Christ Jesus rules as king. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that we would be people who uh, stake our lives on those promises, for you are a trustworthy God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.